Hi, my name is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast of the New Testament. I'll be using as the text the King James Version, along with the Joseph Smith Translation. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll also be using quotes from general authorities of the Church, the Apostles and Prophets, and BYU professors and others, and uh, every word out of the Scriptures themselves. So if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hey there, welcome back. Today's episode is going to be Matthew chapter 19, which will also include Mark chapter 10, and then uh, the remainder of Luke 18. So let's go ahead and get into this one. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 1. It came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and many believed on him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came also unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? In other words, they're talking about divorce. In Mark it says, And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. President Kimball said, The greatest single factor affecting what you are going to be tomorrow, your activity, your attitude, your eventual destiny, is the one decision you make that moonlit night when you ask that individual to be your companion for life. That's the most important decision of your life. In the celestial realms, there are no such thing as making an eternal covenant and then breaking it. Remarriage after divorce is now permitted because the higher law is still not functional at the Lord's kingdom. Marrying a divorced person is currently not considered committing adultery, and that was by uh, uh, Skinner and uh, Ogden in verse by verse. Bruce R. McConkie said, As here recorded, our Lord's teachings about marriage and divorce are fragmentary and incomplete. They can only be understood when considered in connection with the law of celestial marriage, as such has been revealed anew in modern times. These same general principles governing eternal marriage were known to and understood by the disciples in Jesus' day, and also in part at least by the Pharisees. But the accounts here preserved by both Matthew and Mark of the Master's discussion on marriage and divorce are so condensed and abbreviated that they do not give a clear picture of the problem. Modern scriptural exegies, exegesis, Modern scripture needs the same background and knowledge possessed by those who engaged in the original discussion. To have a correct understanding of the part marriage and divorce play in the divine scheme of things, at least the following principles must be known. 1. Marriage and the family unit are the central part of the plan of progression and exaltation. All things center in and around the family unit and in in the eternal perspective. Exaltation consists in the continuation of the family unit in eternity. Those for whom the family unit continues have eternal life. All all others have a lesser degree of salvation in the mansions that are prepared. 2. There was an eternal family in heaven to which all men belonged even before the creation of this earth. God himself, a personal being in whose image man is created, was and is the eternal father. All men are his spirit children and lived with him in the pre-existent first estate. 3. Celestial or eternal marriage is the gate to exaltation. To fill the full measure of his creation and obtain eternal life, a man must enter into this order of matrimony and keep it and keep all the covenants and obligations that go with it. If a couple is so sealed, the two persons become husband and wife in this life and continue in the same relationship in the world to come. For those there are also lesser orders of marriage, only the very elect qualify for celestial marriage. Others, even in the church, are married by civil authority for the duration of their mortal lives only. 
5. Divorce is not part of the gospel plan, no matter what kind of marriage is involved, but because men, men in practice do not always live in harmony with gospel standards, the Lord permits divorce for one reason or another, depending upon the spiritual stability of the people involved. In ancient Israel, men had power to divorce their wives for relatively insignificant reasons. Under the most perf perfect conditions, there would be no divorce permitted except when sex sin was involved. In this day, divorces are permitted in accordance with civil statutes, and the divorced persons are permitted by the church to marry again without the stain of immorality, which under a higher system would attend such a course. Again, that was by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he who made man and at the beginning made him male and female? As he so often did in answering their questions, Jesus simply went back to basic principles. He referred them to the marriage of Adam and Eve, which occurred before death entered the world and while the first man and the first woman were still in the Garden of Eden. He cited the divine decree itself, thus making this first marriage a pattern for all others and said that God himself had joined the parties together and that man, therefore, did not have power to tear them asunder. In other words, Jesus is here preaching a sermon on celestial or eternal marriage marriage that is to last forever in this life and in the next, marriage that does not countenance divorce except as then, as he then amplified when sex sin occurred. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie again. Verse 5, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they, shall, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, or a, a certificate of divorce, and put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say unto you, Wherefore, or whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her that is put away doth commit adultery. This strict law governing divorce was not given to the Pharisees, nor to the world in general, but to the disciples only, in the house at a later time, as Mark explains. Further, Jesus expressly limited its application. All men could not live such a high standard. It applied only to those to whom it is given. And then in Mark... In verse 12, it says, And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Early in his ministry, earlier in his ministry, the master had given it to some to, of his Jew, Jewish disciples, and after his resurrection, he would yet give it to the Nephites. Presumably, it prevailed among them during the near 2,000-year period following his ministry on the American continent. We can suppose it prevailed in the city of Enoch and that it will, will be the law during the millennium. It may have been enforced at various times and among various people, but the church is not bound by it today. At this time, divorces are permitted in the church for a number of reasons other than sex immorality, and divorced persons are permitted to marry again and enjoy all of the blessings of the gospel. If every divorced person who remarried were guilty of adultery, the church would be obligated to expel from such from membership and to deny, deny them the blessings of the gospel and the temple. That was by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 10, his disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with a wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All cannot receive this saying, it is not for them, save to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive, let him receive my sayings. Verse 11, 
Some added background and additional information is needed to understand fully what is meant by this teaching about eunuchs. In the true church and among normal people, there is no place for the practice of celibacy. Apparently, those who made themselves eunuchs were men who, in false pagan worship, had deliberately mutilated themselves in the apostate notion that such would further their salvation. It is clear that such was not a true gospel requirement of any sort. There is no such thing in the gospel as willful emasculation. Such a notion violates every true principle of procreation and celestial marriage. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie. Alrighty, verse 13. Uh, and I'm back in Matthew again, Matthew 19, verse 13. Then were, they, then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them, and pray, and the disciples rebuke them, saying, There is no need for Jesus hath said, Such shall be saved. Bruce R. McConkie said, in, rec in recording a vision of the celestial kingdom received January the 21st, 1836, Joseph Smith wrote, And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. By revelation, the Lord has set the age of accountability at age eight, eight years old. Verse 14, But Jesus said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In Mark it says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Elder McConkie said, It appears that Jesus is here setting the pattern for the blessing and naming of children, as such procedure is found in the regular church today. Verse 16 of Matthew, And behold, one came and said, God, a Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This same question was asked in Luke chapter 10 by a lawyer, and in Matthew, uh, it's a different version of the same. The answer for each were different. One needed to love his neighbor, the other not to rely on, on his riches. Verse 17 in Matthew, And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus noticed that he does not accept the compliment, but defers it to his Father. When we are given compliments, don't take it personal. It may only be because of your calling or talents, but God should always get the credit for any accomplishments others, others may see in us. Uh, back to Matthew, verse 18. He said unto him, which Jesus said, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. In Luke it says, when, Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet Thou lackest one thing, sell that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Brother McConkie said, There is no blanket instruction which applies to all men that they should sell their property and use the money for the poor. This was a specific instruction needed by a particular person who was covetous by nature. His personal inclinations and desires were such that he needed the spiritual testing that such a course would restore, or would require. Joseph Smith said, A religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. The faith necessary unto the enjoyment of life and salvation never could be obtained without the sacrifice of all earthly things. That was found in the lectures on faith. Back to Matthew 19, verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That to which we are most attached 
where our hearts are, that is exactly what the all-wise God might ask us to give up to determine our commitment and thus to go on to perfection. That's by Skinner and Ogden in verse by verse. Joseph F. Smith said, No man can obtain the gift of eternal life unless he is willing to sacrifice all earthly things in order to obtain it. This wealthy youth has has his riches, and now he wants to obtain a hope in Christ. But Jacob, knowing the danger of this sequence of events, said, But before ye seek for riches, seek ye, the, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches, if ye seek them, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good. That was by Ted Gibbons. Verse 23 of Matthew says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly or with great difficulty, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or in Mark in Luke it says the kingdom of God. In, in Mark it says the kingdom of my Father. Verse 24, And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now there's a mistranslation or something I want to point out here about the word camel. Uh, that's interesting. Because um, both... Um, uh, let's see, Matthew says camel, and Luke says ca- uh, camel. And in, 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 uh, Mar- or in Mark, it says, The disciples were astonished at this, but Jesus spake again and said unto them, Children, how, how hard is it for them who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. All right, let's talk about this word camel here. Now, there's two words that are similar in, uh, in the Greek, Camelos, which is K-A-M-E-L-O-S, and Camelos, which is K-M-I-L-O-S. Camelos, the E-L-O-S, means camel, but the I-L-O-S means rope. The camel going through the eye of a needle does not refer to some hypothetical little gate in or alongside a main city gate through which a camel is supposed to edge its way on its knees after being stripped of its burden. We have seen the remnants of numerous ancient cities and gates throughout the Near East, and our conclusion is that such a little gate did not exist. This notion is a figment of the imagination of someone who was probably trying to explain the image without understanding an important figure of speech that Jesus used. The Greek word for needle... Uh, Raphis means a sewing needle. In the Hebrew translation of this passage, the word hamakot is used, which is also the ordinary word for sewing needle. To make his point, Jesus was using a purposefully extreme exaggeration, a literary device common in Hebrew tradition called called hyperbole. When he illustrated the difficulty for rich men to earn the blessing of celestial glory, Jesus adopted a common literary device of his time to stress the hazards and challenges of having great riches. Knowing how wealth and prosperity generally work on the human personality, Jesus could appropriately and perceptively say that it is easier for a camel or a rope to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Riches often engender a self, a sense of self-sufficiency and pride. The rich generally think they have no need for God because money can buy them all they want. The more one accumulates the things of this temporal world, the less inclined one is to pursue the things of the, of the eternal world. And that was by Skinner and Ogden. The explanation of the camel going through a, a small gate called a needle eye is considered fanciful by historians because such a name is unknown in ancient sources. That was by Richard Anderson. Elder McConkie said, Probably Jesus was simply using common proverbial language to teach that it is difficult but not impossible for a rich man to be saved. Some think that the needle's eye was a small door alongside the great 
gates in the city walls, and that in order for a camel to pass through such an, such an opening, all its load of goods would have to be removed. Others suggest that the change of one letter in one, le- in one word would alter the passage to read that it is a rope and not a camel that must go through the eye of a needle. In any event, it is clear that riches add to the difficulty of gaining salvation. So as we press forward into the kingdom, the worldly cares are pulling us back. It's, it's not having riches that's the problem. It's trusting in them that is. So anyway, uh, you can see here the, some of the definitions that might be uh, misleading to us. Uh, so it's not the, the camel that's trying to be put through the eye of the needle, but maybe a rope that's trying to be put. And that is possible to put a rope through. You might have to do it one strand at a time. But anyway, it can be done. Verse 25, when his disciples heard this, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld their thoughts and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but if they will forsake all things for my sake, with God whatsoever things I speak are possible. In uh, Luke it says, And he said unto them, It is impossible for them who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. But he who forsaketh the things which are of this world, it is possible with God that he should enter in. Back to Matthew, verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye who have followed me shall in the, in the resurrection, when the Son of Man shall come sitting on the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now Judas was also was replaced by Matthias. Elder McConkie says, Christ is the great judge of all the earth. The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment into the Son. In due course, every living soul shall stand before his judgment bar, be judged according to his own works, and awarded a place in the mansions that are prepared. Under Christ, a great hierarchy of judges will operate, each functioning in his assigned sphere. John saw many judges sitting upon thrones. Paul, Paul said the saints would judge both the world and angels. The elders are to sit in judgment on those who reject them. Daniel saw that judgment would be given to the saints. The Nephite twelve will be judged by the twelve from Jerusalem and then in turn to judge the Nephite nation. And the twelve who served with our Lord in his ministry shall judge the whole house of Israel. No doubt there will be many others of many dispensations who will sit in judgment upon the peoples of their days and generations, all judging according to the judgment which God shall or which Christ shall give them, uh, which shall be just. Back to Matthew verse twenty nine. And every one that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many of the first shall be last and the last first. Elder McConkie said the saints should not boast of their sacrifices for the gospel. Though Peter had forsaken all and was assured of rewards beyond measure as a consequence, yet Jesus rebuked him for putting himself forth as an example of one who had made sacrifices for the building up of the kingdom. So anyway, that's the end of the chapter, and we'll see you next time. Bye.